Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I hope and trust that you are all well. Before I get started, I would like to give a very special shout out to the reform members of Back to Ashes, Tavia S., Tina Mead, Cindy Cleveland, Patty's Needs, and Samantha Place. The rest will be listed right here on the screen. Thank each and every one of you for becoming a member of Back to Ashes. If you would like to become a member of Back to Ashes, or you would like to support me as a content creator, you can buy me a coffee in which it will be very much appreciated as it does support me and the channel. All of that information can be found in the description below. Now, with all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For when we arise from the ashes, we are bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled Unsolved Mysteries Volume 6. Right after this intro an ad will play, I'll read the first case, another ad will play, and after that there will be no more ads within this video. Warning, some of these cases may contain information that is not suitable for all. Listening discretion is advised. In 1991, a woman discovered a partial human skull while walking through the woods near her home. Who is Jewett Jane Doe? In the fall of 1991, a woman hiking through the woods by her home near Mount Jewett in McKean County, Pennsylvania, discovered a skull cap. Concerned it may be of human origin, she handed it over to the authorities. This skull was transferred to the Anthropology Department at the University of Pittsburgh in Bradford for further research. Researchers confirmed that this was indeed a human skull cap. The skull was determined to be one of a white female that was 15 to 30 years old. They also found there to be a fracture. This skull was additionally examined by anthropologists at Mercuryhurst College in Erie where researchers determined the fracture was likely that of a gunshot wound, indicating some form of foul play. In the summer of 1992, a search was done by the Pennsylvania State Police with the help of Cattaraugus County Sheriff's Department in New York to find additional remains, but none were located. In 2016, an updated range for her time of death was provided which stated that the skull cap had been there for more than two years, but likely less than 30, meaning this Jane Doe could have possibly died from sometime in 1961 to 1989. That same year, her DNA was submitted to CODIS, but no matches were found. There are a lot of questions with little answers to be found. Hopefully, someday, her DNA is eventually matched to somebody, but only time will tell. From what I can tell, there are no rule-outs as to who she may be. Unsolved, Terry Brisk killed while deer hunting in central Minnesota, 2016. Terry Brisk was a 41-year-old, married father of four. He was killed while deer hunting alone on his parents' property on November 7, 
2016. The murder occurred between the hours of 2.30 and 4.30 p.m. on property located at Bell Prairie Township, northwest of the intersection of Hawthorne Road and Jewel Road, northeast of Little Falls, Minnesota. Terry had taken the day off work, unknown to his wife, but not shockingly, as the Minnesota firearms deer season had just started two days prior to his death. Terry's family had done fairly well hunting over the weekend, but he still wanted to get a deer on his license, and the weather that day was perfect, unseasonably warm, clear skies and little to no wind. Terry was found dead in the woods that afternoon by his oldest son, who had come out to join him in the hunt after school. Terry was found dead from a single gunshot wound inflicted by his own rifle. Police have ruled out suicide as the rifle was found hidden some distance from his body, and the particular model of rifle he hunted with has safety features which make it difficult, if not impossible, to commit suicide. Also, the angle and impact suggest someone who was close to him, but not himself, was the shooter. Speculation has ranged from a trespasser on the property looking for a Gates, or possible another hunter. Again on the property illegally. Terry's family have repeatedly said that he would never have threatened or shot at anyone first and strongly suspect that he encountered someone unexpectedly. Law enforcement have recently, 2022, indicated that they are looking for a blue van or minivan that was possibly in the area that day. There is a $30,000 reward being offered for any information that results in an arrest or conviction in the case. The murder of Charles Joseph Reynolds, December 21, 2022, Silver Spring, Maryland. On the evening of Wednesday, December 21, 2022, 62-year-old Charles Joseph Joe Reynolds went to dinner with his family at a restaurant in downtown Silver Spring, Maryland. Downtown Silver Spring, or DTSS as it is known locally, is a city suburb on the border of Washington, D.C., the neighborhood is convenient to public transportation and has many of the same amenities as living in the city, such as restaurants, entertainment venues, and shops, but retains a suburban feel as well. Downtown Silver Spring is a highly diverse area in terms of race, ethnicity, country of origin, age, marital and family status, gender identity, sexual orientation, religion, socioeconomic status, etc. After dinner, Mr. Reynolds went to put the family's leftovers in the car, which was parked at a nearby public garage. Then, he planned to join his family for ice cream at a Ben & Jerry's across the street. When he did not rejoin his family, they notified the authorities. 
Tragically, Mr. Reynolds' body was found in a stairwell of the parking garage, where he had been shot to death. By all accounts, Mr. Reynolds was a loving husband, father, and friend. He was involved in his church and in the local community. There is no apparent reason why anyone would have wanted him dead. His family was devastated by the passing, which happened only four days before Christmas. Downtown Silver Spring is generally safe, but street crime can and does occur. Murders, however, are rare, and when they do occur, they are usually domestic incidents or other disputes between people who knew each other. However, Mr. Reynolds' murder appears to have been a crime of opportunity. Following the shooting, Montgomery County, Maryland police increased patrols in the parking garages. While there already were security cameras in the parking areas of the garage in which Mr. Reynolds was killed, there were no cameras in the stairwells, which is why over six months later, a suspect in Mr. Reynolds' murder remains elusive. Anyone with information about the case is encouraged to contact the Montgomery County Police Department Major Crimes Division at one 866 411 tips or 8477 callers may remain anonymous why do you think mr reynolds was murdered right before christmas was it truly a random crime of opportunity or was he targeted for some unknown reason if he was targeted it is possible that it was a case of mistaken identity for instance if the killer meant to target someone else who looked similar and also spent time in downtown Silver Spring. Please help spread the word about the case, and if you have any information, notify law enforcement. Even if information seems inconsequential, it could be the missing puzzle piece that law enforcement needs to solve the case. Mr. Reynolds deserved justice, and his family needs some semblance of closure. Which missing person cases have the most haunting details? Some of this information was taken from the Charlie Project. Quote, there is speculation that Anna's biological father, George Henry Waters, was involved in her disappearance. George, a doctor, began behaving erratically after Anna's birth and was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia. His family refused to have him committed to a mental hospital. However, as this would have caused him to lose his license to practice medicine... George had a relationship with another, older man who called himself George Brody. Anna's family believes this name was an alias. They describe Brody as a manipulative man who exercised a cult of personality over Anna's father, which led to his divorce from Anna's mother. George moved into a cheap hotel in San Francisco, California, with Brody after the divorce, Although, as a practicing physician from a wealthy family, he could have afforded better lodgings. 
He supported Brody financially and reportedly did not make any decisions without consulting him. Brody was interested in Anna and believed her to be the reincarnation of a woman he had lived with. He made Anna's mother legally change her daughter's name, adding the word Effie as Anna's middle name. The word apparently has no meaning. Brody merely wanted the letters added to Effie's name so her name would numerologically add up to his own name. George never contacted his ex-wife after Anna's disappearance to offer sympathy or ask for updates on the case. His only known reaction to his daughter's abduction was to ask his attorney if he could discontinue his child support payments. Brody died of cancer in December 1981. His death certificate shows no birth date, no known relatives, and no social security number. After Brody's death, George destroyed most of the papers relating to himself. Brody and Anna, except those which were stored in a safe deposit box. Approximately two weeks after Brody died, George committed suicide by drinking poison in his hotel room. His exact date of birth is unknown, as his body was not discovered for about a week. End quote. Police investigated Anna's father and Brody, but found no evidence that they were involved in Anna's disappearance, despite their strange behavior. Anna is still missing, and she would be 55 if she is still alive today. Anna's case is just so haunting to me. Who was Brody, and why did he seem to have such a hold over Anna's father? And the fact that he had no birth certificate or no social security number. Just what was going on there, and what happened to Anna? Nico Lisi, a sad but eminently solvable missing persons case that happened in 2011. The story of Nico Anthony Lisi is a tale of mystery and heartache that spans over a decade. Nico, an 18-year-old from New York, vanished without a trace in 2011. His last known location was in Franklin, Tennessee, a place far from his home. He had left New York with a friend, Robert Knight, on a journey that was supposed to take them to Detroit. However, after dropping off Robert, Nico set his sights on Franklin, and that was the last anyone ever heard from him. Nico's mother, Monica Button, has been tirelessly searching for her son ever since. She has faced numerous false hopes and disappointments, including the discovery of skeletal remains in Williamson County, Tennessee, which turned out not to be Nico's. The only tangible clue to Nico's fate was the discovery of his dismantled truck in Nashville in 2016, five years after his disappearance. The case has seen its share of twists and turns, Robert Knight, the last person known to have seen Nico, passed away shortly after Nico's disappearance, reportedly from a drug overdose. A resident of Flintlock Drive in Franklin, 
where Nico's phone last pinged, sent him a Western Union money order for $90 on the day he disappeared, presumably for gas. Despite the passage of time, Monica remains hopeful. She is grateful for the continued efforts of law enforcement and remains confident that the truth about her son's disappearance will eventually come to light. As she waits for that day, she carries the burden of a mother's love and the pain of not knowing what happened to her son. Here are the key factors from the case. Nico Anthony Lisi disappeared on October 1, 2011 at the age of 18. He was the last seen in Franklin, Tennessee, far from his home in New York. Nico had left New York with a friend, Robert Knight, intending to go to Detroit. After dropping off Robert, Nico headed for Franklin. Robert Knight passed away shortly after Nico's disappearance, reportedly from a drug overdose. Five years after Nico's disappearance, his dismantled truck was found in Nashville. Skeletal remains found in Williamson County, Tennessee sparked hope but were later confirmed not to be Nico's. A resident of Flintlock Drive in Franklin, where Nico's phone last pinged, sent him a Western Union money order for $90 on the day he disappeared. Despite the passage of time, the case remains active and Nico's mother, Monica Button, continues to hope for answers. This case is still ongoing. Debbie Dolores Williams, missing from Florida since 1990 and waiting for justice. In the quiet town of Lake Wells, Florida, a mystery has been brewing for over three decades. The name Debbie Dolores Williams, a 24-year-old mother, has become synonymous with a haunting cold case that has left the community and law enforcement puzzled since 1990. Debbie was last seen alive in March of that year. A family member reported her missing, and it was estimated that she had been absent for about four weeks prior to the report. The Lake Wells Police Department, or LWPD, held onto a single partial page from the initial report, the only tangible piece of evidence in a case that seemed to vanish into thin air. The case saw renewed interest in 2019 when retired Lake Wells Supervisor Melvin Waldron brought forward rumors that had been circulating for years. The whisper suggested that Debbie had been murdered by her on-again, off-again boyfriend, a man who has since passed away. The rumors also pointed to the possibility that Debbie's body might be buried under his former residence or near the U.S. 27 overpass, close to the Florida's natural growers facility. Acting on these rumors, the LWPD conducted searches around and under the house in question. An officer found bones under the house, but they were confirmed to be animal remains by the medical examiner's office for the 10th Judicial Circuit. Despite this setback, the LWPD remained undeterred. 
They are currently arranging for the use of ground-penetrating radar equipment to further examine the plot of land at 108 Dr. J.A. Wiltshire Avenue. The LWPD has also been in contact with the FBI about checking DNA against a national database of unidentified bodies. They are in touch with Debbie's mother, brother, and daughter, who have been waiting for answers for over 30 years. Here are the essential facts. Debbie Dolores Williams disappeared in March 1990. She was 24 years old at the time and also a mother. A family member reported her missing, and it was estimated that she'd been absent for about four weeks prior to the report. The case saw renewed interest in 2019 when retired Lake Wells supervisor Melvin Waldron brought forward rumors that Debbie had been murdered by her on-again, off-again boyfriend, who has since passed away. Rumors suggested that Debbie's body might be buried under her former boyfriend's residence or near the U.S. 27 overpass close to the Florida's natural growers facility. The LWPD conducted searches around and under the house in question. An officer found bones under the house, but they were confirmed to be animal remains. The LWPD is currently arranging for the use of ground-penetrating radar equipment to further examine the plot of land at 108 Dr. J.A. Wiltshire Avenue. The LWPD has been in contact with the FBI about checking DNA against a national database of unidentified bodies. The LWPD is in touch with Debbie's mother, brother, and daughter, who have been waiting for answers for over 30 years. A reward of $5,000 has been offered for any information that leads to locating Debbie Williams. Missy Eck was on her way to hang out with a friend when she walked along the road in her Pensacola, Florida neighborhood. She never arrived at her friend's house and hasn't been seen since that hot summer evening in 1992. Melissa Lynn Eck, known as Missy to Friends, was born on November 8, 1976 and grew up in Escambia County, Florida. In the early 1990s, her family lived in a working-class suburb known as Bellevue, just outside of West Pensacola. Missy was close to her sister, Tammy, who was three years older than her. Her little sister, Kathleen, was seven years younger. Missy's mother, Mary, worked to provide the best life possible for her children. Her home did not have a telephone, and she allowed her daughters to come and go from the house freely without checking in. In June 1992, Missy was 15 years old and had just completed her freshman year at Escambia County High School. She enjoyed music, makeup, and spending time at the beach with her friends. At the beginning of the summer break, Missy's friend Jackie helped her get her first job as a server at the Original Point restaurant. Because the restaurant was about a 20-minute drive from Missy's home, and she did not yet have a license, 
Jackie would often invite Missy to sleep over at her house as needed, so the two could just carpool in to work together. Missy was dating a boy named Brian who also grew up in the neighborhood. His name was Fro. His age in 1992 was still unknown. Some reports indicate he was a few years older than Missy, while conflicting sources state he was only 15. Brian and Missy's families knew each other before they began dating, and Brian's mother was friends with Missy's mother. The Disappearance On Thursday, June 25, 1992, Missy planned on sleeping over at Jackie's house since they were both scheduled to work on Friday morning. Instead, Missy decided to hang out with Brian that evening and presumably find another way to work the next morning. Brian lived with his mother, Ellen, less than half a mile away on Clara Street. That evening, Missy used Ellen's telephone to call her friend Lisa. The two planned on hanging out at Lisa's house, which was also a short distance away. Lisa was also with her boyfriend, and the two offered to walk over to Brian's house and then walk back to Lisa's house together. Missy declined, telling Lisa she would walk to her house with Brian instead. They excitedly exchanged the rest of the planes for the evening and hung up the phone. Around 8.30 p.m., Missy and Brian left his house on Clara Street and walked south along Patricia Drive towards Lisa's home. Half a mile down Patricia Drive, they approached Santa Barbara Street on the east side of the road and then Lenora Street on the west side. According to Google Maps, it would take about 10 minutes to walk from the house on Clara Street to Santa Barbara Street. Sometime while walking between Santa Barbara and Lenora Streets, Brian ran into one of his friends walking the opposite direction. Brian and Missy parted ways, and Missy continued walking south on Patricia Drive towards Lisa's house. This is the last known sighting of Missy Eck. Witnesses would later place her within a few doors from Lisa's house around 9 p.m. After an hour of waiting on her porch, Lisa began to worry about Missy. She asked her boyfriend to walk up the road and see if Missy and or Brian were along the route, while she continued to wait for them outside her house. When her boyfriend returned alone and said he could not find either of them, Lisa started panicking. Lisa went inside and called Brian's house at about 9.30 p.m. When they realized Missy was not with the other one, they started searching for her simultaneously and made phone calls to other friends, hoping somebody had seen her. Brian told Ellen about the situation, who then called Missy's mother, Mary. There are a few details available in the investigation and search efforts for Missy. Even though she did not have any of her belongings with her and left her purse at Brian's house when they departed, the original investigators believed she was a runaway. Missy left her makeup at home and didn't bring a change of clothes with her to Brian's. Both indications that she never intended to stay anywhere overnight on Thursday, according to her friends and family. 
Tammy, Missy's sister, was adamant that she would have called her if she was planning on running away. In early August, five and a half weeks after Missy was last seen, Mary told the Pensacola News Journal that the Escambia County Sheriff's Department had just conducted a first search party that week. The delayed search had covered the densely wooded areas surrounding Patricia Drive, most of which was underdeveloped at the time. Missy's family, Brian, Ellen, Lisa, her boyfriend, along with several other family members and friends and volunteers, joined in the search efforts. No known evidence was ever recovered. Investigators went to the original Point restaurant where Missy was working as a server. She had not shown up to any of her scheduled shifts since June 25th and never picked up her last two paychecks. Her friends and co-worker, Jackie, helped in the search and told investigators that she thought Missy would never have run away. Her home life was seemingly mellow, and her mother let her come and leave the house as she pleased. These factors, along with the persistence of a few investigators, led the department to change the case classification from runaway to endangered missing person and suspected foul play. Unfortunately, Missy's disappearance did not receive much attention from the media either. Searches expanded throughout the small community, but Mary often felt as though she was the last person to receive any information about her daughter's case. Since she did not have a home telephone, she was left with no way to communicate with the investigators, exchange tips, or receive updates. Because of this, Ellen became a liaison of sorts between law enforcement and Mary's family. She frequently reached out to investigators for updates and distributed missing posters around popular teen hangout spots in Pensacola. Ellen listed her home phone number on the missing flyers, hoping they would garner tips for law enforcement. In August 1992, Ellen told the Pensacola News Journal that she often drove to Mary's house less than half a mile away and and gave to her updates on the investigation. At that time, Mary had only received two updates from the sheriff's department and felt isolated from the search for her daughter. Brian was questioned by law enforcement multiple times as he was the last known person to see and talk to Missy. According to Ellen, her son was worried sick about Missy and could not eat or sleep in the weeks following her disappearance. Mary stated in August 1992 that she didn't suspect Brian had anything to do with Missy's disappearance, telling Pensacola News Journal that the two were so much in love. Missy Eck was 5 foot 7 inches tall, though some agencies report her as 5 feet 11. She had naturally curly sandy brown hair and green eyes. She had a BB scar from a BB gun on her buttocks. One of her ears was pierced once and the other ear pierced twice. She often wore hoop earrings in her piercings. 
Missy had a Norplant birth control implant in her left arm when she disappeared. The Doe Network states that she was last seen wearing a black tank top, black shorts, and black shoes. Who killed Jody Bordeaux and her unborn child? Powhatan, Kansas, November 21st, 1977. Jody Bordeaux was born Cody Campbell on August 11th, 1969, in Lincoln, Nebraska. Little seems to be known about her childhood. She met her future husband, Sean Bordeaux, while he was attending the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and the pair got married in 1995 in Sean's home state of South Dakota. Jody and Sean would move to a small farmhouse on the Kickapoo Indian Reservation in Kansas. While Jody was not Native American, Sean was part Lakota. Jody and Sean wanted to start a family, but Jody had trouble getting pregnant. After several miscarriages and seeing fertility specialists, Jody finally became pregnant with a baby girl. Both Jody and Sean worked at the Golden Eagle Casino, which was the first casino on the Kickapoo Reservation. Sean worked in the management team, although the tribal council made the final decisions. Jody was well-liked at the casino and was soon promoted to the manager of the slot machine department in which she supervised several employees and had to give them performance reviews. However, several of the employees at the casino were resentful for having Jody as their boss, in part because she wasn't Native American. According to Unsolved Mysteries in a Medium article, quote, there was one specific employee who did not want her as their superior. Jody had to write several unfavorable reports about this person, as they were often late and had a bad attitude. The council put them on probation, and they were ultimately fired, end quote. At one point, this particular employee had even accused Jody of faking excuses to get out of work on the casino's busy weekends. A few weeks after the employee was fired, he filed a grievance against Jody, saying that she had been late for work a lot of time herself. This was true, but the only reason Jody was late was because she'd been going to doctor appointments in order to conceive a child. Because of this, Jody stayed an extra hour each day to make up the time she'd missed, but it didn't seem to matter. Jody was still fired over this grievance. Over the next month or so, Jody lobbied hard to get her job back. The council who made decisions about the casino said they'd consider it. When word began to spread that Jody may get her job back, she began to get odd calls at her home. Jody would tell her mother that the person always hung up. Jody also believed that there was someone watching the house hearing noises outside, and at one point, thinking someone came up to the porch. Sean assured Jody that it was nothing. It was probably just raccoons or coyotes. On the evening of November 21, 1997, 
Jody and Sean were in their living room watching TV and discussing bills when they both began hearing strange noises. The couple's dog also began barking at an unknown presence. All of a sudden, someone began shooting into the house. Sean would later say that at first, he didn't know what was happening, but ran into the kitchen with the dog. Jody had run into the couple's bedroom to hide. After the shooting stopped, Sean rushed into the bedroom to check on Jody. Jody had been shot in the head and was bleeding heavily. Sean grabbed the first thing he could to soak up the bleeding, a sock. Sean called 911 in order to try and save the baby. Jody was seven months pregnant by this time. But by the time paramedics and police got there, Jody and the baby had perished. Because the couple were in such a rural place, it took a while for emergency vehicles to get to the house. Police would later find numerous shell casings outside the Bordeaux home, and Sean would later report hearing a car leaving after the shooting stopped. The police began an exhaustive investigation into Jody's death. One of the main suspects in Jody's death is the casino employee whom Jody reported for tardiness and the bad attitude and would complain about her, although one source says the man was ruled out as a suspect. However, there are some roadblocks in the investigation. A reporter interviewed on Unsolved Mysteries would say that there really isn't any trust between Native Americans and no Native law enforcement. It is also believed that anyone from the tribe who came forward would get retribution, and some were apparently threatened. Nancy Bear, a chairwoman for the Kickapoo tribe, did agree to be interviewed on Unsolved Mysteries. Sean, citing painful memories, would move away from Kansas and move back to his home state in South Dakota. He is now a representative for his home state tribe, got married again, and has had children. The baby girl he and Jody would have had together was going to be named Jordan Shea. Jody's case remains unsolved as of today. A $5,000 reward was offered in the case. I don't know if this reward is still offered, though. The police still believe that someone on the Kickapoo Reserve knows what happened to Jody. In May 1989... A construction crew unearthed the skeletal remains of a young woman in Bullhead City, Arizona. She had been murdered and buried in a shallow grave. 34 years later, she is still unidentified. Who is Castleberry Kate and who killed her? On May 15, 1989, a group of construction workers were digging a trench for a gas line at the intersection of Castleberry Lane and Riverside Drive in Bullhead City, Arizona, when they made a gruesome discovery. Bullhead City is part of Mohave County and sits right on the border of Arizona and Nevada, a short distance away from Laughlin, Nevada, in the 1980s. The population of Bullhead City was roughly 10,000 people. 
The construction crew was digging through a vacant lot at the intersection when they unearthed a shallow grave holding the skeletal remains of a young woman. Without a name or identity to go off of, the unidentified descendant was given the nickname Castleberry Kate by investigators, which is what she is still referred to as of today. The remains were brought to the medical examiner for an autopsy, which revealed a bit of information about the woman. Castleberry Kate was determined to be between the ages of 17 to 19 years of age, and it was concluded that she had been dead up to 10 years, but not longer than that. They speculate that she had died between 1979 and 1987, and her cause of death was homicide. Despite her cause of death being classified as a homicide, the actual manner of death has never been released to the public. Jane Doe was determined to be white, having stood anywhere between 5'5 and 5'9, with most estimates having placed her right in the middle at 5'7. Due to the state of the remains from decomposition, her eye color and weight were unable to be determined. Her hair was 12 inches in length and was medium brown to dark brown in color and showed evidence of having been bleached at one point in time. Her dental examination showed that she had extensive dental work done in her lifetime and that she had two missing upper teeth prior to her death, along with a partial dental plate in place in her mouth. A dentist recognizing this plate or his own work, or perhaps someone who knew a young woman who had been missing up her teeth, could potentially one day lead to identifying Castleberry Kate. Clothing found with the body was described very vaguely, simply that they were wearing pieces belonging to a woman, without any exact description given. A purse was also discovered with the body, along with one multicolored owl-shaped earring. It seems like investigators tried to extract DNA in 2016 to aid in identifying Castleberry Kate, but it was not successful. There have been many rule-outs in her case, according to stories of the unsolved, including... Number 1. Ashley Standish Higgins, who went missing from Costa Mesa, California on November 6, 1982. Number 2. Andrea Joy Hill, who went missing from Redondo Beach, California on July 8, 1979. Number 3. Anna Marie Anderson, who went missing from Cypress, California on December 5, 1983. Number 4, Amy Billing, who went missing from Coconut Grove, Florida, on March 5, 1974. Number 5, Tara Lay Calico, who went missing from Balin, New Mexico, on September 20, 1988. Number 6, Miriam A. Cavallo, who went missing from Los Angeles, California, on November 12, 1983. Number 7. Carla Rebecca Corley, who went missing from Birmingham, Alabama on August 12, 1980. Number 8. Barbara Louise Cotton, who went missing from Williston, North Dakota on April 11, 1981. 
Number 9. Carol Elaine Dawn, who went missing from West Palm Beach, Florida on October 20, 1980. Number 10. Michelle Leon Duncan, who went missing from Los Angeles, California on November 4, 1984. Number 11. Deborah Lee Frost, who went missing from Salt Lake City, Utah on July 9, 1984. Number 12. Rochelle Marie M., who went missing from Phoenix, Arizona on July 13, 1986. Number 13. Cynthiana Adriana Leslie, who went missing from Mesa, Arizona on July 30, 1974. Number 14. Jackie Leslie, who went missing from Mesa, Arizona on July 31, 1974. Number 15. Connie Gell Menchaca, who went missing from Napa, California on June 9, 1978. Number 16. Rhonda Gale Sansovich, who went missing from Elmira, Oregon on March 7, 1989. Number 17. Wilma Raver Moss, who went missing from Los Angeles, California on April 13, 1976. Number 18. Amy Marie Yechimake, who went missing from Phoenix, Arizona on November 6, 1981. Number 19, Patricia Evans Gomez, who went missing from Belvedere, California on December 26, 1979. Number 20, Dole Columbus Meredith, who went missing from Nyland, California on January 24, 2005. And 21, Stephanie Kelly Stroh, who went missing from Wells, Nevada on October 15, 1987. 34 years have passed since the discovery of Castleberry Kate, and possibly 44 years since her murder took place. There is still a chance that her killers are alive and out living their lives. Identifying this Jane Doe would be the possible key to identifying her killers and bringing them to justice. There's a huge chance that a family is out there missing their loved one. Having no clue that her skeletal remains were unearthed one spring day in May 1989 in the desert of Arizona. Hopefully one day the nickname Castleberry Kate will no longer be used and this Jane Doe will actually have her name restored to her and a family will have the answers they have been searching for. In 2019, Brandon Embry was discovered in his apartment, naked, unconscious, and covered in blood. His cause of death was determined to be pneumonia, with the manner of death listed as natural and later changed to undetermined. His mother believes he was murdered. What really happened to Brandon? Brandon Embry was born on September 7, 1986. He grew up in a military family with his mother Sarah, stepfather Reg, brother Scott, and sister Rachel. Brandon was a bright and well-liked kid, but kept to himself and was a self-described introvert. He was a lover of music and in his teens found a love for powerlifting. In 2005, at the age of 19, Brandon enlisted in the Navy 
where he was stationed out of Hawaii as a nuclear submarine machinist. He was honorably discharged six years later following PTSD and a back injury and returned to his family in Seattle, Washington. After his parents moved out of state, Brandon got his own apartment and eventually enrolled at the University of Washington as a chemical engineering student. Sadly, Brandon couldn't keep up with financial constraints in Seattle, and in July 2018, made the difficult decision to leave the University of Washington and move to Asheboro, North Carolina, to be closer to his family. Brandon was able to secure an apartment at Park Place at 711 South Church Street and found a job working in robotics. Brandon had low levels of testosterone and was subsequently prescribed hormone shots which he had to administer himself. This meant that Brandon always had vials of liquid and disposable hypodermic needles with him. This may be an important factor in how the police later viewed Brandon's lifestyle and death. Health Issues In February 2019, Brandon was at work when he started to feel unwell. His employer noticed something was off and asked Brandon to leave and get drug tested. Brandon agreed and decided to stop at McDonald's on the way. Whilst at McDonald's, Brandon deteriorated, having terrible abdominal pain and throwing up. A member of the public called 911 and the operator suspected drug overdose or poisoning and dispatched EMS. First responders noted that his behavior was unusual, including Brandon appearing unsure on how to operate a door handle. Brandon was transported to hospital and on admittance to the ER fell unconscious, where he was subsequently sedated and put on a ventilator. Brandon was showing signs of acute respiratory distress and was placed in a medically induced coma for several days. During this time, his kidneys began to fail, and so he was put on dialysis. Despite several blood tests, it could not be determined what was wrong, and after five days in the hospital, Brandon was discharged. He had no recollection of his stay but told his mom that he felt he had been profiled as a drug user from the very beginning. Two months later, on April 24th, Brandon became suddenly very hot at work. He passed out, hitting his head on the ground. Brandon quickly awoke and resumed working. But an hour later, the same thing occurred. EMS was called out, and he was transported to hospital again. This time, he was conscious and explained that he had abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. The doctor suggested that he could have eaten some outdated meat and ran some blood work, all of which showed nothing, including no sign of illegal drugs in his system. Brandon was ultimately discharged with no answers. Two months later in June, Brandon was again sent home from work due to being pale and jittery. Brandon sought medical assistance and again explained that he was suffering from fatigue, general weakness, overheating, 
nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Blood tests and an EKG showed no sign of what might be causing his issues, and once again, he was sent home without answers. Fired from his job and last contact. In late August, Brandon went on a work trip to Detroit, and on returning on the 6th of September was told he was being fired from his job. The hotel room they had put Brandon in for his trip had taken photos of Brandon's room, including images of his medication and syringes, and general messiness of the room. I haven't seen the images myself, and they allegedly also show bags of food, dirty clothes, and an unused slow cooker. Additionally, small spots of blood can be seen on the white bed sheets. After receiving the news, Brandon drove to his parents to dog sit. He explained what had happened but appeared to be in good spirits and told his mom he had already spoke to a recruiter about another job. Brandon's mom left him looking after the dog while she drove to Kentucky. The following day, Saturday, Brandon's mom spoke to her son to wish him a happy birthday. By the time she and Rachel had arrived home at around 8 to 9 p.m., Brandon had already left. He had initially had plans to meet up with a girl, but texted his dad saying she had canceled. Over the next few days, Brandon and his mom exchanged several texts. However, by September 10th, he stopped responding to messages. Brandon's mom, Sarah, made several attempts to call him. However, none were answered. At this point, she decided it was time to go and check on him. On September 12th, Brandon's mom and sister attended his apartment where they immediately noticed his truck parked outside. They assumed he was home, but on knocking on the door, they received no answer, and on trying the door, found it to be locked. At this time, Sarah was concerned enough that she decided to call the Ashboro Police Department for a welfare check. Discovery of Brandon's Body After receiving a copy of his key from the property manager, officers entered Brandon's apartment at 3.20 p.m. They immediately noticed the messy state of the apartment and heard the water running from an area towards the back. Officers entered Brandon's bedroom where they found him naked and unconscious on the floor. He was found in a pool of water where the bathtub had overflown. Officers noted multiple bruises, cuts, and lacerations to Brandon's body and a large pool of blood under his head. Dried blood was present on his face. Officers noted he was cold to the touch but did find a faint pulse and immediately transported him to the Randolph Health Hospital. Officers searched Brandon's apartment, which was in extreme disarray. The bed linens had been stripped, drawers opened, various items overturned, and broken belongings scattered over the floor. The blood-stained sheet was crumpled up on the floor and blood was found on the mattress, pillows, walls, nightstand, and the closet doors, which had been removed from their hinges. Water was running from the shower in the bathroom and the toilet had been pulled from the floor and was leaking. 
The toilet bowl had been stuffed with toilet paper and the bathroom mirror was smashed. Investigation A further search of Brandon's apartment revealed his wallet under the bed, with approximately $100 still inside. They also located hypodermic needles, a metal clipboard that had various dents in it, and a small metal pole which appeared to have blood staining on one end. It was determined that the front and back doors had both been locked, and there was no sign of forced entry. Earlier reports from police indicate that they believed it was not possible for Brandon to lock the door from the inside after receiving his injuries. A warrant was also obtained for his truck, which was also filled with mess, trash, and food. Sadly, Brandon began to quickly deteriorate in hospital and was transferred to Greensboro Moses Cone Hospital for additional care. Brandon's mom was told he would continue to have seizures until his heart gave out, and the decision was made to take him off life support. Brandon sadly passed away on September 13, 2019 at 8.57 p.m., through receipts located in the property along with bank and cell phone records, officers were able to put together a timeline for the days leading up to Brandon's death. July 9, 2019, Brandon's 33rd birthday and the last phone call he had with his mom. August 9, 2019, 10.26 p.m., Brandon orders a Domino's pizza which he signed for. His mom has confirmed the handwriting that appears to be that of Brandon's. September 9, 2019, 4.21 p.m. Brandon texts his mom complaining of being sick and having a headache. October 9, 2019, 6.30 a.m. Final text Brandon said to his mom, although the content is unknown. October 9, 2019, 11.27 a.m., a purchase was made using Brandon's card at an adult store called Adam and Eve. Staff confirmed Brandon was a regular there but couldn't confirm if he was there that day. No CCTV was obtained. October 9, 2019, 8.26 p.m., the last outgoing contact on Brandon's phone. There was a call made to a woman in Virginia who Brandon was allegedly dating at the time. The woman is not Cassandra G., who will be discussed later. November 9, 2019. Multiple calls are made to Brandon's phone, all of which go unanswered. November 9, 2019, 1.30 p.m. FedEx attempts to make a delivery at Brandon's apartment, but there is no answer. December 9, 2019, at 3.20 p.m., Brandon's body is discovered. Autopsy Brandon had numerous cuts to his face, including a deep Y-shaped cut to his eyebrow, with cuts and bruises to both the inside and outside of his lips. He had a head injury, which was determined by the discoloration around his eyes which is often evidence of a fracture to the skull. Several bruises and patches of swelling were found on his head. 
the largest being on the right side above his ear. Brandon had several scratches to his back and sides and bruises to his lungs, which one officer quotes as being consistent with being struck with a hard object such as a metal rod or baseball bat. Brandon had several deep scratches on his arms, measuring up to eight inches long. He had a small puncture wound to both his left wrist and right palm, and skin was torn away from the inside of his left thumb. There was three-fourths of an inch cut to his right wrist, and an additional one to his right palm. Brandon had extensive bruising to his legs, along with various scratches and scrapes, and two small puncture wounds to his toes. Additionally, there was a three-fourths inch cut around the arch of his left foot. One member of hospital staff told police the wounds could not have been self-inflicted. Despite these injuries, however, the medical examiner concluded Brandon died as a result of pneumonia. She confirmed that the pneumonia was present prior to admission, and in addition, both his kidneys were failing, and there was evidence of moderate liver disease. Although she was unable to determine what had caused his injuries, the medical examiner concluded that they were not contributory to his death and therefore classified the manner of death as natural. As for the injuries themselves, the medical examiner believed that Brandon may have been in a state of psychosis and could have inflicted the injuries upon himself. Cassandra G. As she has never been named a suspect, I will not include her full name here. But Cassandra was reportedly the girlfriend of Brandon from February 2019 up to the point of his death. Brandon's mother wasn't aware of Cassandra's existence until Cassandra messaged the family introducing herself. The message read, quote, Hey, I know you don't know me at all, but you're Brandon Wesley Embry's sister, and I was your brother's girlfriend from mid-May until his passing. I met him on a dating app called Hinge. He sent me a text with a crying emoji on Tuesday the 10th, and I haven't heard from him since, and I've been worried a mess since then. He never told me your mom's name, but that he had a sister that was in Kentucky. I found out the hard way yesterday when I went by his apartment at Park Place in Ashboro on South Church Street yesterday evening and some woman told me he had died. I hope you know how wonderful of a man he was and that I thought the world of him. End quote. Brandon's sister recalled Brandon telling her about meeting Cassandra in February 2019, but had heard nothing about her since. The rest of the family were completely unaware of her. Brandon's mother, Sarah, met with Cassandra and was shocked to discover that they had been planning on getting married. Cassandra also informed her that she had been pregnant with Brandon's baby, but miscarried. Sarah and the rest of the family have doubted the seriousness of their alleged relationship. Sarah continued talking to Cassandra online and stated that their conversations began to get strange, although I have no further details of the contents of these messages. 
She passed this information on to the police department, and detectives spoke to Cassandra, who stated she was home in bed at the time of Brandon's death. Cassandra stated she had been in Ashboro a week prior to Brandon's death and had returned to check on him, which is when she learned of his death. Detectives asked Cassandra if they could download her phone, to which she agreed, but unusually allowed her to keep hold of her phone while they traveled to the police department. Officers noted Cassandra using her phone multiple times during this trip. When officers were able to download the phone, they noticed everything had been deleted. There were no texts, calls, or GPS data. It appeared she had likely performed a factory reset on her phone. Cassandra was later found to have lied about multiple things, including telling Brandon she was Russian. She, her parents, and grandparents are all from Maine. That she had multiple sclerosis, OCD, an eating disorder, a master's degree in nursing, and a twin sister who had passed away. All of these were found to be false. It was also later discovered that Cassandra was married at the time of her relationship with Brandon to a male named Danny. They lived together in South Carolina. Danny stated the marriage was good until she started going away for long periods of time in 2019. This is likely when she started the relationship with Brandon. Danny informed Brandon's mother that looking back, he believed he was being poisoned by Cassandra. Sometime around 2016, Danny began feeling nauseous, weak, and fatigued, and this continued into 2019. He also stated his health began to improve after he left Cassandra. Another ex-partner of Cassandra's also informed Brandon's mother that he too believed he had been poisoned by Cassandra during their relationship. It does not appear that either Danny or the ex-boyfriend reported any of those suspicions to the police. Brandon's health issues began in February 2019 the same time that he allegedly started a relationship with Cassandra. His mother believes that Cassandra had been poisoning Brandon and this ultimately led to his death. Despite his mother's suspicions, Cassandra has never been named as a suspect in Brandon's death. Subsequent Investigation In January 2020, the investigation was passed over to Detective Lori Johnson. Brandon's mother, Sarah, met with Detective Johnson to explain her belief that Brandon may have been poisoned. Detective Johnson refused all of Sarah's concerns and told her that she believed drugs played a part in Brandon's death. On February 7, 2020, the medical examiner issued an amendment to the autopsy, changing it from a natural to an undetermined death. The medical examiner wrote on the autopsy, quote, Upon further discussion of the case, it has been suggested that Brandon's organ damage may have been caused by substance ingestion on September 10th that had been metabolized by September 12th. Substance ingestion may have been the cause of death, and this cannot be proven or disproven by the autopsy findings, end quote. 
On February 27, 2020, detectives closed Brandon's case, and a month later, Detective Johnson ordered that all forensic evidence was to be destroyed. Conclusion On the 15th of February, 2021, the chief of police at the Ashboro PD ordered a managerial review of Brandon's case, which was conducted by Major Jay Hansen. Major Hansen met with both the M.E. and Brandon's mother, and after eight months, agreed with the medical examiner's findings, and concluded that there was no crime in relation to Brandon's death. As it stands today, Brandon's case is closed with no findings of foul play. Brandon's mother, Sarah, continues to investigate, and has started a GoFundMe page to raise funds for her investigation. She continues to post information that she has uncovered on her Facebook page, Brandon's Voice. There is a huge amount of information on Brandon's case, largely down to his mother, Sarah, who has never stopped trying to find answers. Sarah sat down with murder, she told, and they have done a truly extensive write-up. I could not include all the information here, but would highly recommend reading it as it contains a wealth of information. What do you think led to Brandon's death? I would love to hear your thoughts and theories on this case. In April 2022, Johnny Cashman's family were told he died of a medical issue. Days later, a large amount of blood was found in his apartment and footage showed an unknown male leaving his apartment on the day of his death. Johnny's family believe foul play is involved, but police think otherwise. Johnny Cashman Jr. Johnny was 38 years old at the time of his death. He lived alone in an apartment in Lynchburg, Virginia, whilst his sister Sarah and their parents resided in Maine. Johnny was described as a good man with a big heart, but unfortunately suffered with anxiety, bipolar disorder, and alcohol dependency. Despite the distance, Johnny remained close to his family and spoke to his mom on a daily basis. On April 14, 2022, Johnny's communication suddenly stopped, and throughout the following days, Johnny's family grew increasingly concerned. After several days of no contact with Johnny, his family contacted the Lynchburg Police Department for a welfare check. April 19, 2022 On April 19, Officers from the Lynchburg Police Department attended Johnny's address at 1415 Kemper Street to complete a welfare check. Upon entering the apartment, they located Johnny on the floor deceased. Police contacted Johnny's family and informed them he had been found deceased in his apartment, indicating that it appeared to be from natural causes. Johnny's mom told the officer that he had pre-existing medical conditions and this information was passed on to the chief medical examiner. Investigators declined an autopsy and believing the death to be of natural causes gave permission to move the body. 
The local medical examiner reviewed the body and concluded there was no trauma. ABC 13 obtained a copy of the medical examiner's report which stated, quote, blood and fecal matter found around home, likely GI, bleed per investigators, no trauma, no drugs, nothing suspicious, end quote. On speaking again to the family, investigators informed them that Johnny had died from a medical condition. Johnny's father clarified with the investigators if there was any sign of violence or suicide, and investigators confirmed that the death was due to natural causes. Investigators also confirmed there would be no autopsy. The family had no reason to doubt the police and, believing he died from natural causes, had Johnny cremated. The Scene and the Ring Footage Ten days later, on April 29th, with permission from Johnny's family, his ex-girlfriend and her mother attended his apartment to collect some things. On entering the apartment, they were unprepared for what they discovered. The apartment was in disarray and large amounts of blood was seen throughout. Shocked at what they had seen, they immediately took photos of what they had discovered. Upon leaving the apartment, Johnny's ex-girlfriend met his neighbor outside. She immediately showed them the picture she had taken of the apartment, and they told her that they had had a ring doorbell. The two began sorting through the video clips until they located the footage from the day it is believed Johnny died. The camera is aimed directly down the stairs in front of the neighbor's address, with Johnny's apartment to the left at the top of the stairs. On April 14th, the last day that Johnny spoke to his mom, you could see Johnny returning to his apartment at 3.03 p.m. Johnny appears healthy, bounding up the stairs and entering his apartment. At this point in the footage, all you can see is the stairs and Johnny's closed apartment door. Less than a minute after you see Johnny entering the apartment, you hear a male shouting, Dude, what the hell? What are you doing, man? Yo, what the heck, dude? Following this, you can hear banging noises and a male shouting, Stop, several times. At 3.11 p.m., eight minutes after Johnny entered the apartment, a male can be seen leaving Johnny's apartment. He closes the door behind him and descends the stairs before turning around and returning back. The male appears to pull his sleeve over his hand and wipe the door handle. He then returns down the stairs and exits the building. At this point, you can hear a male voice, presumably Johnny, shouting for help. There is a full and unedited video on Facebook, but sadly, I'm unable to link it. It's easily Googleable if you search Johnny Cashman ring footage. The ex-girlfriend sent the video and pictures to Johnny's sister, Sarah. Sarah immediately called police, as did the neighbor and ex-girlfriend. Sarah left several messages for officers, and after several days received a call back. She was able to record the end of this phone call. Quote, Sarah, Yeah, the problem is you told us up front. 
it was natural causes. So we had the body cremated. And so now there is no evidence. End quote. Quote, detective. What I was trying to convey was it was a medical emergency, and I was talking to your mom, and I tried to clarify what I said originally and explain what I meant by the medical emergency being vomiting, blood, everywhere uncontrollably, end quote. The man in the footage. On May 2nd, police made a public appeal in the hopes of identifying the man seen on the footage. A week later, on May 11th, the man was identified. He has never been named a suspect or POE, so I will not name him here. But his name can be easily found with a bit of searching. Going forward, I will refer to him as SC. SC was questioned and claimed that he was sofa surfing and had stayed with Johnny for about three days. He stated that he had come home to Lynchburg for work, but the job fell through, and so asked anyone he encountered for a place to stay. At some point, he met Johnny, who agreed to let S.C. stay with him. He claims that on the day of Johnny's death, Johnny returned to the apartment drunk, and the two got into an argument, although he claims it wasn't physical. S.C. claims he left the apartment, at which point Johnny was drunk but physically fine. He admits to wiping his fingerprints off the door, as seen in the footage, and claimed this was because he had aggravated burglaries on his record and didn't want to be accused of squatting in the apartment. Sadly, this is the only account from S.C. I can find. I'm unable to find any further explanation regarding the audio heard in the footage or any further details around their alleged argument. Subsequent Investigation In October 2022, it was announced that the Lynchburg Commonwealth Attorney would not be pressing charges in relation to Johnny's death. Bethany Harrison cited a lack of evidence, stating, quote, Given the pattern of blood loss by Cashman, that there were no other shoe patterns in the blood other than his own, that his medical history and current prescriptions and risk factors were consistent with his death, resulting from a fatal medical event, end quote. In response, Sarah stated, quote, I don't know if he had been drinking, quite possibly so, but he had no problem getting back up those stairs and into the apartment didn't show any sign of a person who was about to have a major medical event that would ultimately lead to their death, end quote. Sarah stated her brother regularly went to the doctor, and on December 29th, four months before his death, he had undergone a full examination. This included abdominal checks, which noted no issues. His only diagnosis were anxiety, bipolar disorder, and hypertension. There was nothing GI-related on this visit, nor during an additional visit in January. Conclusion No one has ever been charged in relation to Johnny's death, and in the eyes of Lynchburg Police Department, 
there are no suspicious circumstances and Johnny's death was the result of a medical emergency. There have always been two camps in relation to Johnny's death. The first being that he did in fact have a freak medical emergency and that SC was so shocked from this event he immediately left not wanting to get involved. This may not make SC the most wonderful human being in the world but does not necessarily make him a murderer. The other camp, of course, is that Johnny was murdered, most likely by SC, and that incompetent police work and mistakes led to Johnny's cremation and ultimate lack of evidence in a murder investigation. I'm curious to know, what do you think happened to Brandon? And that, dear listeners, brings a close to these Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 6. If you are asleep, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. If you are awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. Until next time, I hope you have yourselves a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.